You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Nathan Gilmore, and I'm a professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. And I'm joined on the line today by Dr. David Grubbs. He is an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. David, how are things? Things are. It was raining hard coming into work today, but uh, I once once I'm inside... Uh, I actually like that. I'm in a building with these um, really high, almost kind of warehouse-style ceilings. This building was originally built for art studios with lots of light. Um, But it means that when it rains, it just kind of, it's like sitting on the inside of a drum. Kind of nice. I I, I think the metaphor made it sound worse than it actually is. (laughs) I work harder in the rain, David. I don't know. I don't know what that is. It's some like long dormant understanding of what academia is. But I, I work harder when it when it rains and even harder when it snows, which is almost never here where I am. Yeah. Well, it's absolutely never where I am. That's true. Well the man in a place where it never snows is Dr. Michael Farmer. Uh Michael, how are things there in Sandy Springs? No. Sandy Springs, Sandy Springs. I was Springs. right. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's. I like to drive my wife crazy by asking her who she thinks Sandy Springs was and what she did that was good enough to name the town after. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> the founder of Sandy Springs, Georgia. Sandy Springs. Oh, man. Well, we got lots going on around the network this week. There's a Christian Humanist Profiles uh, interview with Abram Van Engen on his book, City on a Hill, uh, about American exceptionalism. Uh, that's an interview I enjoyed conducting. Uh, there's a new episode of Restoration, uh, largely not about uh, policy matters, but about personal uh, consumer habits. Uh, there's yet another country music episode from City of Man, is there not, Michael? It is, yeah, and we recorded it so long ago that I don't really remember what's in it, but I, I think Danny says some very harsh words about Aaron Tippin. if anybody's interested in hearing that. I don't even know that name, so I... <laughs> He he can say whatever he wants, as it turns out. Uh, anything else around the network, guys? Uh, before they were live, should finally have dropped. We talk about the Hunchback of Notre Dame, a secret success. Excellent, excellent. Today's episode is a request by listener uh, Matthew Limber. Uh, he requested a follow-up to our episode years ago on literary criticism and critical theory, and so. That's what we're doing. Uh, so I'm trying to take it in, uh, you know, somewhat different directions from what we did all those years ago. Although, frankly, I can't think that there's too many listeners who have listened to that recently. But we should start by noting that all three of us are too young, really, to remember the height of the theory wars. 
Uh, usually people talk about the late 70s through the early 90s as the peak of that struggle. But as you guys remember, what place did critical theory have in our graduate school experience? Michael, tell us a story or two. I took a literary theory and criticism class as an undergraduate at Bible College, and uh, we studied, in addition to the, you know, Plato and Aristotle and Joseph Addison or whoever, we, we studied the usual suspects of, uh, of critical theory, Foucault and Derrida and Roland Barthes. Um, although, really, I think what, what gets called critical theory today doesn't have much to do with Bart or Derrida and really really comes much more from that uh, from that Foucaultian school uh, kind of uh, run through uh, race theory and, uh, and gender theory. Uh, in graduate school, I, I took one class that was dedicated solely to critical theory. I, I think we covered other types of literary criticism, but it was called critical theory and we spent, um, we spent the bulk of the, the class with it. And I, you know, I loved the teacher so much that I got into the, the theory more than I think I otherwise would have, um, because it was obviously very important to him. And I liked him a lot. I still, I still like him a lot. Uh, Bob Darcy is his name. He teaches at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. He's a great teacher, but I, I kind of fell into the sway of, 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 literary theory, critical theory for some time. Uh, this was balanced by a class I took with a guy named Charles Johanningsmeyer, um, who hated critical theory so much that when people would apply to teach at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, if he was on the, on the committee to hire them, which he always tried to be, he would reject out of hand any application that mentioned Foucault more than three times. Jeez. <laughs> Holding the wall. But at the same time, the class I took with him was a class called Race, Gender, and the Politics of American Fiction. And he, I mean, he he, he did, I wouldn't say he pushed anything because he wasn't that kind of teacher. But he certainly introduced us to that side of things, to the canon wars. We read this guy, Paul Lauder, who's, um, who's infamous for, for being one of the voices that um, on the side of critical theory during the canon wars. And then the, the person we read on the other side was Roger Kimball, who um, is not the sort of scholar that Paul Lauder is. And I'm, I'm surprised if Joe Hanningsmeyer didn't want us to come away admiring critical theory, that he would, um, that he would assign those two against each other. I don't know. But uh, yeah, so I mean, I have some experience with it. I always tried to teach it when I taught contemporary philosophy, and when I taught literary criticism and theory, of course, although the last iteration of Lit Crit, I did drop Derrida. I decided the, the work the students had to put in to reading Derrida was no longer appropriate given his kind of importance in the contemporary scene, if that makes sense. But we still read Foucault and we still read Barthes and we read a number of race and gender theorists who I think would fall neatly into what we're describing as critical theory. How about you guys? David, tell us some stories. I took an undergrad uh, course in uh, in theory. Interestingly, uh, Michael, you, you you took it as as part of your undergrad um, at uh, Tacoma Falls. Tacoma Falls. Yeah, uh, I was at Southeastern Bible College, and we only had one English professor, and he couldn't teach all the classes for an English major. Um, which meant uh, 
pursuing my degree required me to go to other local colleges uh, to do that. I was going to say so, Southeastern offered a critical theory class to undergrads, but I guess they, well, I guess they did not. No, they didn't, and not not because you know they they wouldn't have. I'm sure he would have taught such a thing, um, but there was only one. <laughs> there was only one Dr. Green, so um, uh, I went to the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and uh, that was where I was exposed to theory. Um, over half the class was uh, MA students, and so I was a you know, I was the the lonely undergraduate in the in the the, the room of people who had um, not only done the reading but had understood the reading in in ways that I didn't, and connected to it in ways that I didn't. Um, I, I I just my my memories of that semester are are not fond. Um, uh later on um m i took uh composition uh an advanced composition course from a uh a rhetorician who did his who 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 did a lot of work on gorgias and so um that kind of that that analysis of rhetoric rhetoric as a game not as a um, not necessarily as something that's aimed at finding a big T truth. Um, uh, he, he was a big fan of Gorgias. So, uh, that, that, that kind of showed up, um, in, in the way that we talked about rhetoric, but that but that was a good thing because he was, he was very, very much focused on, um, uh, style and voice and being persuasive and presenting yourself well, um, that, that side of rhetoric, uh, I appreciated getting that. Um, but for the most part, the professors who've, who I chose, um, those are the classes I'm going to take and so forth, tended to be much more old school, much more uh, historically minded, much more old school liberal humanist um, in the... Uh, they're concerned about what's in, what's what's good for for the human in general, and they are open to you know considering different ideas generally in that old school liberal sort of way. Um, uh, so it re it wasn't really until I got to my PhD that, that that I got into many more classes where theory was the main thing. Um, then I found myself in a, a Chaucer class with Andrew Cole, um, who uh, is now at. Princeton, I think. I believe that's uh, right. Yeah, that's where he went after UGA, anyway. Yeah, I think last time I heard, he's still there. Um, and he was very much about uh, a uh, the 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 course I I took was called Chaucer and the History of the Book. So very much, you know, this kind of analysis of means and production and how that's influencing um, what is being written and how one writes and um, how books are disseminated and all that sort of thing, and I found a lot of that stuff really, really interesting because it was getting into the in a, into a very practical side of. I I know that a lot of it was in some sense 
it was theory driven, but it was a theory that was forcing me to engage with a kind of particularity um, in the historical material that I hadn't really gotten into that nitty gritty um, mm. of. So um, that did not completely change um, my previous uh, uh, frustrations with the kinds of conversations that you could have with theory and the kinds of conversations that um, it tended not to have. Uh, but I did come to appreciate um, a, an, a, an approach to literature that is paying attention to um, the, the kinds of things that Marxists pay attention to, namely means of production, material conditions, uh, that sort of thing. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, David, because it, it seems to me that we use that, just the two of us have now used the term critical theory to refer to three rather discrete things. One of them is post-structuralism, the kind of Derridian, Barthesian um, view that the text is is infinitely pliable. Uh, the other is is um, what, you're, what you're talking about, the, the kind of classical Marxist uh, attention to history and materiality. And then the third is what um, Peter Bergosian and James Lindsay got infamous for calling grievance studies, which I, I use the more charitable term of race and gender um, studies, which is kind of looking for uh, relationships of power in, uh, in well, all of, all of human society, essentially. So it's it's interesting that when when somebody talks about critical theory, they could be talking about any of those things and perhaps a fourth or a fifth thing, and it's it's not clear in, until you talk to them further which, if any of those, they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there are I don't I don't I don't know. Maybe maybe if we dug down deeper, we might find um, common epistemic moves or common perhaps interests or goals, what they would see as the purpose of the thing that they do. Um, but certain Common ancestry, certainly. I think Marx yeah. stands somewhere behind all of them. Well, and right. a common stance of resistance. So, I mean, all uh -huh. of them have in common that we're not going to do what the 1940s English department did. Right, or what um, what Paul Ricoeur calls the hermeneutics of suspicion. I think you could say yep. all, all yeah, three of those so. things have. I think so. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure we'll talk more about the hermeneutics of suspicion later. Yeah, so um, since then, I, I've never in, um, in the English departments that I've taught, there was someone else who was already comfortably ensconced teaching the, uh, the theory and criticism course. Um, that's never, so that, that, that hasn't been anything that I've had to um, brush up on. So, uh, dear listeners, if uh, you sense a reticence on my part uh, as we go into this episode, uh, or if some of my attitudes seem to you um, rusty and outdated, that is because all of my all of my encounters with these approaches to my field were brought upon me by the necessities of my uh, of my educating <laughs> and since no one's thrown me in the pool and I won't get in the pool so um, but but now I, I, I recognize that that means um, I cannot say 
the most insightful things and so i would rather listen to listen to those things be said by some by those whose engagement has been more recent deeper and fresher than mine that's fair enough see i I have this situation where I was once really into it, and over time, my aesthetics and my hermeneutics have both gotten um, more conservative. And I, I feel like, in some ways, I was saved from uh, from the the Derridian kind of critical theory uh, when I read Heidegger and Gadamer and Paul Ricoeur, the the kind of um, oh, I don't know what you'd call them. Maybe maybe you'd call them conservative postmodernists. Uh, I I felt like they gave me another way to do the the things that I appreciated about Derridian critical theory, without having to go full Derrida, which was nice. That's fair enough. So just a quick uh, snapshot of my history with it. Uh, I did not have a literary theory or criticism class as an undergrad. The uh, Milligan English Department at the time. I don't know if they still do it or not. Uh, basically interspersed that kind of thing throughout the literature classes. Um, so uh, I was a double major in English and philosophy, so I read a lot of these writers, but I read them as postmodern philosophy rather than as literary theory. So mm-hmm. when I got to seminary, you know, I just kind of continued thinking of them as, you know, postmodern philosophers. Uh, and then I got to University of Georgia and took a class with Andrew Cole, not the same one that David was in. And what I discovered was there was a circle of theory fans uh, who yeah. tended to follow Andrew Hall, Andrew Cole down the hallway and who, you know, dropped uh, catchphrases from uh, French and German theorists and, you know, increasingly a Slovenian theorist named Zizek. Um, <laughs> but what I discovered in this class, and it, it honestly... Uh, it was probably terrible for my ego because I already had one and this should p- just made me worse, uh, was that in that class, you know, one of those three-hour-a-week uh, graduate seminars where you start at six and you stop when everyone's ready to crawl under the table, um, what I discovered was that the theory heads could drop the catchphrases for about 45 minutes, but then for the remaining two hours... Uh, I actually could go deeper than they could because I had actually spent time reading philosophy rather than sort of pre-digested philosophy filtered through, you know, critical theory journals. So, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that was kind of my... I, I, I don't want to use the past tense. I think it kind of still is, is that a lot of people who are really into critical theory tend to be people who like to throw around the phrases that philosophy generated but haven't really dwelt with the philosophy necessarily and i think that's that's one of the reasons why i mean you know just listening to these stories i think all three of us are holding critical theory at arm's length uh i was probably more into postmodern philosophy 20 years ago than i am now uh i think that's probably just you know Mm -hmm. partly the effects of age (laughs) i think i've gotten old and old and grumpy about things but is theory, so is theory a young man's game you know i mean unless you're zizek or andrew cole because I've, I've read you know not necessarily journal articles from andrew cole but i've read things where uh, andrew cole was interviewed recently and he seems just as dedicated to it now as he was 15 years ago when i was in his class and his branch is mainly that 
um, historical materialism uh, branch of critical theory, Nathan. I, I never met Cole. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I, I didn't know if that was a question or a statement. Yes, that, that, that is the question. Case. I'm sorry. That's yeah. all right. That's all right. I just got lost there for a moment. I'm like, okay, do you want me to confirm that? Because um, when, when we were in graduate school, the, the grievance studies thing was, it, it existed. There, there were women's studies departments. But I feel like that really came into power in the last 10 years. And, and so I don't have a whole lot of direct personal experience with that sort of person. My wife, I should say, has a degree in women's studies. And even she says that what gets called grievance studies is a really bad example of what women's studies should be. So I, I do want to hold out um, hold, hold out those two terms as, as different things, that, that all cultural studies are not grievance studies. But grievance studies as a concrete phenomenon i think it's a good term for something and i think that something is of relatively recent vintage and my my impression is it's what replaced the kind of deridian critical theory mm. yeah yeah i think so go ahead david que question michael and nathan uh nathan you you referred to being able to go into class and because you read more deeply in into these in the kind of foundational writers as philosophers, you were able to move beyond the the tropes and the catchphrases. Um, I haven't dug deeply into it, Michael. Is there maybe something going on there that might be a, an analogous distinction between women's studies properly done or whatever, or race studies properly done, and what gets late, what gets called grievance studies? I'm sure we'll get to this later, but my my impression of grievance studies, having having not had a whole lot of, and I, I I even I even hesitate to use the term because it's so politicized, but I think yeah. it's a I think I think it's a term that describes something real. My impression is these are people who know what the answer is before they ask the question, and so they make everything fit the answer, and and that's what I would say is the difference between. Um, gender studies, for example, even critical gender studies and grievance studies under the guise of gender studies. The, the grie grievance studies knows what the answer is. The answer is patriarchy. And now we just have to look at the information and tell us where patriarchy is. I find that um, in addition to being politically dangerous, as we'll see later, I think it's boring. I mean, why read something <laughs> if you already know what the answer is, right? Now, that may be, that may be a... Um, that may be an uncharitable way to, to talk about. And of course I haven't mentioned any actual names, so I'm not talking about anybody in particular. I'm talking about a broad trend, especially one to move into the next question. Once it's divorced from academia proper. And we could say, I mean, just, just to kind of dart out there, you know, ahead of an interlocutor and say, we could say the same thing about a kind of lazy, perhaps a lazy humanism uh, whose answer to what the text mean always ends up being something like the indomitable human spirit. Yes, absolutely. It, that That's also boring. There, and there's a certain sort of moralistic Christian criticism that works the same way, right? It's that, a sin problem. You know, <laughs> right. Or, so, or that's a Christ figure. Right. right. Everybody's Jesus in purgatory. So I, I, I think um, I, I think that's that's a distinction that's helpful to keep in mind here that um, there, there is such a thing as a critical theory that, you know, is actually engaged in asking the questions and in listening to answers. And then there's a um, there's another form of critical theory that is not interested in that. And having not had any direct experience of of um, of 
cultural studies classrooms in the last 15 years, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give percentages here, you know? Right. Although, and, and David, I, I want to throw this one to you. I mean, one phenomenon that I have found curious is that even at, um, even as, pardon me, the move from the foundational text to the pre-cooked answers is alarming. Even more alarming, I think, is the migration of those pre-cooked answers out of the academy and into social media. And it seems like they transform those terms even further when they're unmoored from the academic conversations where they first arise. So, David, I mean, what are a couple of those transformations that you've seen? Uh, Or, I mean, you know, uh, do all of them look like Twitter feeds to you? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Again, y'all are have been historically and maybe now um though i don't are you are you're you're not on twitter twitter anymore are you gilmore no i deleted my twitter account okay all right well y'all have previously been much more engaged there than i have been and are probably still i am very on twitter (laughs) you are very yes okay michael is very on twitter i'm somewhat on twitter when i can think of something clever to say that is um almost completely apolitical um i will say that um so uh my my answer to your question nathan uh, you know filter through that some things that i've observed terms that that show up um in kind of worse versions uh the the way that the the the, the term deconstruction tends to get used today oh heaven help me <laughs> yeah um check me if i'm wrong but my impression is that deconstruction basically means something like um a an aggressive debunking that's that's meant to that that means that i don't have to engage you anymore um frequently made in the most kind of you know, sort of cynical, what you really mean is this, and now I've destructed, deconstructed your position, which means I don't have to listen to your arguments anymore. Right. It's, it's what Alistair McIntyre calls uh, unmasking in After Virtue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's something akin to um, my least favorite show on Netflix, which my wife has been binging lately. Um, uh, what is it? Adam Ruins Everything? Is that the name of it? Yes. Okay. I like Adam Ruins Everything. Uh, I hate it. I want to set him in fire. <laughs> that makes sense. That tracks. Um, because the... that in, it's, it's well actually the TV show. Yes, that pose. <laughs> uh, je déteste. Alright? I just... Not, none of it. None of it, none of it. And that often is what... Uh, I perceive as being meant by, oh, well, we, you know, you know, read this person's decon, you know, th- this person deconstructs that position and it's, and it's an Adam, Adam ruins everything style unmasking. And it's Derrida's fault though, because he, he used this term and insisted that it couldn't be defined. <laughs> so you can't even say they're using it wrong. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, so that one, um, uh, a kind of knee-jerk social constructivism. 
if if I can give you some factoids about oh well we've only been doing this particular tradition has only existed in this form for this amount of time, or it, it came about for this reason. So that whole thing, you know, can just be dismissed. That was just something, you know, this social construction. And that's uh, that's called uh, genealogy in Foucaultian terms, and he gets that straight from Nietzsche. Yeah. Um, the very, very sloppy versions of that. Um, uh getting done but it's but it's almost like a knee jerk as if that's all you need to do um uh just a, pr- a presumption of the kind of Foucauldian um power knowledge connection um the way that you are arguing is simply a is simply an assertion of power um there are no ideas you're just trying to assert power um Although, as Coyle Neal would no doubt point out, that evaporated in a hurry once Donald Trump got elected. All of a sudden, we yeah. all of a sudden we love experts. <laughs> we love truth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I have something to say about that a little bit later, but I, I think. Oh, that, sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. But I, I think that has been there. I think that has that 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 the. The ex the 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 pose of expertise is there, but it is a a deeply cynical expedient use of the trope. But wait, David, you understand that you are now engaging in the sort of Foucaultian uh, expose of power in knowledge that you you decried. Well, we will see. We will see when we get to that whether that question whether or not my analysis is that i just deconstructed you Uh, (laughs) you do ruin everything Uh, you're getting ruined restaurants too that episode anyway sorry i mean what 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 am i missing what what have i not listened to yeah michael do you have any other favorite uh critical theory twitter therms uh, yeah, standpoint epistemology, they don't use that term. Um, standpoint epistemology says that uh, what you know is dependent on who you are. This is this is part of the move behind we need to get more women into STEM. It's not just that women have been excluded from uh, the, the, the kind of rewards of working in science. It's women have specialized knowledge that science won't have if we don't have them. So the, the theorist who's behind that is this woman, Sandra Harding. And, uh, you know, I, I, that, that's another idea that I think has some some validity to it, but that on Twitter gets taken to its illogical conclusion, which is if you are a member of this race or a member of this gender, you can't say anything at all about um, about life as another person. Right. But then, of course, if you're a member of this race. Yeah. Right. Right, but then if you're a member of this race or that gender and you don't say anything, you you get you get accused of uh, ignoring that experience. So I that this is this is a way in which these kind of critical theory terms that have some real validity to them, right? Like it's it's standpoint epistemology. There's some truth to that. There's some truth to the notion that sometimes expertise gets used as a bludgeon against your political enemies. 
Um, those things get weaponized on social media where there's there's no accrediting process and no thought necessary. You can just spout it off as catchphrases. And I remember, uh, Michael, when those two streams uh, came to an event horizon, I'm sure they'll come to more over the years, uh, there was an article, and it has to be on Slate, even if it wasn't on Slate, uh, called White People Should Just Stop Writing Books. <laughs> yeah, which is, I mean, the, the only... The, the only reasonable conclusion behind all these things. Yeah. Shut up. <laughs> nice. And that's why this is the last episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. But what, what's interesting, I mean, it's easy enough to tell a bunch of straight white men to shut up, right? But eventually you're going to have to work out who's allowed to talk and who's not. And, and some of that finagling has been interesting to watch. I know that a lot of Asian Americans, for example, feel like critical race theory leaves them behind because they're too successful as a minority. So they're not white. They're technically people of color, but also they don't really count as people of color because they're not oppressed enough. Right, right. I'm, I'm reminded, and this has to be 12 years ago now, uh, Jurgen Moltmann was at a, one of the emergent church events. This is how old it is. Um and he said, you know, I just, I just kind of get tired of people saying, you know, we need to quit privileging uh, white male European writers. We need to find more people from Africa and Asia to help us do our theology. It's just like Karl Marx said. And then he just trailed off. And and you could just hear it because I was listening to the audio podcast as people looked around to see if they were allowed to laugh at that. And eventually, you know, once, <laughs> once people realized they could, I mean, that was a hit. The, the, the idea that the idea that the ideas that are often animating that, that, that perspective arise from people who are located in that perspective, who, who are located in these uh, spaces of special knowledge of special perspectival knowledge that is simply like, like that isn't historically. Let's do the, you know, if we do the genealogy of <laughs> of critical theory, you're not going to find it originating in the marginalized space. No, so, no. So, do, so how did it somehow become the way that we understand and hear the the truth peculiarly peculiarly seen from the marginalized space? Right. And as Michael notes, and I mean, I, I feel like we say this a lot on this podcast, but it deserves to be said, a lot of these things are really useful tools for doing the jobs that they are made to do. Yeah. It's when people start cleaning windows with a claw hammer that you get broken glass. Yeah, well, and, and not just not just cleaning windows with a claw hammer, people who have only a vague notion of what a window or a claw hammer is using them you, you know it's like you said it's it's highly specialized terms um created by people who are um you know trained to use them maybe maybe i'm appealing too much to expertise and of course lots of lots of people who do this on twitter are uh have have degrees in the humanities and advanced degrees in the humanities so you know feel free to ignore me well and i mean it's also worth noting that i mean when it reaches the next event horizon. Uh, I, I don't know why I keep using astronomy metaphors today, but uh, I mean, you get the strange use of critical theory terms by the alt-right. Right. 
Well, identitarian politics are identitarian politics. What do you what do you think is going to happen when you tell a bunch of white men that all they're able to talk about is white men? Uh, they're going to talk about white men. They're not going to shut up. People don't stop talking. They're they're going they're going yeah. to cluster together. They're going to assume that the only thing that they're capable of talking about is is white men, and then they're going to privilege that. Now, I'm not I'm not saying that critical theory is responsible for the rise of the alt right. You know, li, you know, understand what I'm saying and not what I'm not saying. But I, I do think there's a kind of completely understandable consequence there. Right. Right. Well, Michael, uh, I want to take the, take this down a rabbit trail that I honestly might not do anything, but once I scribbled it in my notebook, it wouldn't get out of my head. And that's the notion that the phrase critical theory uh, shares an adjective with critical philosophy, which I usually associate with Immanuel Kant. So have you ever heard of any historical connection between the two, or does the critical and critical theory have some other crisis in mind? I think there's a kind of vague connection to Kant. The, the, the more obvious critical theorist there is, is Marx, but Marx uses the word critique as in the critique of uh, political economy. Is that the name of that book? He uses that in imitation of Kant. So what it has in, in common with Kant's system is that they're trying to look at the way we have always seen things and overturn them um, and, and kind of break through what Marx would call false consciousness. Uh, Kant obviously doesn't use that term. Uh, it's very unkantian in the sense that critical theory comes especially from the Frankfurt School, which somehow we haven't mentioned, Theodor Adorno, Max Horkheimer. Uh, I, I think that's the, that's the school that Jordan Peterson is talking about when he talks about postmodern neo-Marxism. I, I, think, I think those are the people he has in mind, although I'm not sure he really knows um, who he has in mind, frankly. Um, but th those people are very much about combining philosophy with, uh, with cultural studies and with sociology in particular. And Kant wants to raise philosophy above all the other disciplines. And so in that sense, this is not an heir of Kant at all. I don't, think, I don't think Kant would be on board with a lot of this stuff because what he's looking for is so universal. But um, I, I do think that the methodology has that one thing in common that it's about looking at what everybody else has always said and said, no, you're wrong. And I, and I guess the connection that I was toying with, and it might only end up being a toy, is that, you know, critique of pure reason especially is all about uh, outlining the limits to what you can say and still be speaking reasonably. And it strikes me that a lot of the sort of foundational figures in critical theory are doing that kind of thing. They're saying when people make these kinds of claims... They are out of bounds for what they can reasonably say. Does that connection is that is that too much of a stretch, Michael? Uh, well, I, I don't think the word the word is coming down in that way, but I do think it's a connection. Uh, and as we know, you hate uh, Kant more than you love Jesus. <laughs> and Evergreen. Uh, yes, listeners. Yes, it returns. It returns. That's a joke from like what 2010. Uh, it's got to be 2010. Yeah. Yeah, only the uh, only the real long-time listeners will get that one. We should have a 10-year anniversary episode about how Nathan hates Kant more than he <laughs> loves Jesus. The, ten, the special 10-year anniversary edition. That's right. <laughs> um, 
Well, David, I mean, you can feel free to hark back to Kant as much as you like. I have a hunch that's going to be not very much. But I, I do want to let you have a chance to tee off on critical theory. You've already kind of started. Uh, but our longtime listeners know that I'm fairly comfortable with a fairly broad range of theory. And likewise, they'll know that you're fairly suspicious of a fairly broad range of theory. So what are some of the vices, excesses, blind spots, overreaches, and other sins of theory that our listeners should keep watch against? Mm. The one... Uh... The one that I was thinking about before the episode is one that Michael's kind of already uh, already pointed to, which is the uh, the idea that in many iterations of it, uh, it is it is of the sort that knows what answer it will find before it starts seeking. Um, and yet, uh, frequently, it seems to me in the public discourse of the last you know of the last. Eight, eight, ten years, whatever, whatever, wherever it is, we're going to set that arbitrarily. It seems as if many of the of the spokespersons for those perspectives will present themselves as the experts in the field, the ones who know the way things are. I'm the expert. I wrote the book. Here's my book. It has lots of footnotes. Now pay now pay me twenty thousand dollars to consult with your HR department. Yeah, um, but. Those, but the theories are mostly self-confirming viewpoints that pretty much reach the same conclusion regardless of what input you put in. So while it seems like they're playing on this kind of latent popular level American default for respect for a kind of scientifically flavored empiricism, right? You know, people like facts and they like data and they like charts and they like stats and they may not know what to do with them. <laughs> but there's some there's something crunchy about that side of uh, that that side of things. So when a perspective um, is is presented with that uh, with that air, you know. We, we tend to, you know, there, there, there tends to be some deference there. Um, and not, and, and I know that there, there's the, the, oh, well, the suspicions of expertise and suspicions of the elite. But if you, if you dig into that, usually you'll find that the person who's suspicious of the elite and suspicious of the expert has their own elites and their own experts. Right. Who, they listen to those people, not those other people. Right. Um, uh, it, it, it seems to me, in my completely uns uns unscientific review of my Facebook feed, <laughs> that the people who get treated as, uh, who, who even think of themselves as anti-elitist and against the expertise, they have the elites and the experts that they follow who just simply to be, uh, happen to be against another set. Um Everybody the, the pandemic response is a great example of that, don't you think? Yeah. The 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 people who don't trust Anthony Fauci, have, you know, they have their own doctors whom they follow. This isn't an episode about the pandemic response, uh, but but you, thank you, God, you, there's certainly an appeal to authority there. It's just an an appeal to authority that hasn't been corrupted by the mainstream establishment or whatever. Yeah. 
and well, and that and that's exactly the kind of positioning that the that that critical theory is. We have the expertise that isn't corrupted by the mainstream establishment. Yeah, even when it is the mainstream, right? Even when it's your HR department hiring, um, is her name Robin D'Angelo to to run a three day conference for twenty thousand dollars? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is that even though there is this comfort with using the the self presentation as the expert. Right, as the voice of the research. When there are empirical studies, when there is data that doesn't confirm the results that they that they seek because of the theory, that's just a sign that empirical and objective research is itself a tool of the impressors and we've got to undo that. Right. All right. So that's that's white male science. So it's an ep- it's it's just this, and that's stand that's standpoint epistemology turns yeah. sour. So it's an epistemic loop that is happy to use the tropes of the cult of expertise while denying its foundations whenever that's convenient, and then when you when you rail against it, you are against expertise and you are against elites, and when there are uh, credentialed people who know the data in their field who say y'all made that call wrong. Well, that is why the establishment of researchers needs to be torn down because they are the tools of the oppressors. Um, and, you know, what you were saying earlier, Michael, about the, you know, the uh, if you tell a bunch of white males that they can only talk about being white males, then golly, they'll talk about being white males. Um, it seems as if a lot of the alt-right has simply said, ah, this is how we play the game. We shall play it too. We just have different, you know, we just have different goals that we want, but we're going to play the same game. And it's it's the same deeply cynical heads I win, tails you lose game. Right. And if everything boils down to, uh, you know, power knowledge, you know, that, that Foucaultian formula that Michael alluded to earlier, then, I mean, it's, it's really difficult to find any uh, Archimedean point from which to critique that kind of maneuver. Yeah. Well, well, and that's that's what's so scary is these 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 movements create their opposites, and so you you get one side who are uninterested in truth and and interested in advancing their agenda through any means necessary, and that makes the other side interested in not interested in truth and interested in advancing their agenda by any means necessary. Mm-hmm. And and then the rest of us, I, I have felt for the last six months or so like I'm living in Ionesco's rhinoceros and I'm just watching everybody in town turn into a rhinoceros. Everybody just completely lose their mind in uh, different ways, but they're still losing their mind. If If everyone in the game thoroughly believes in this power knowledge thing, eventually you stop playing the knowledge game and you just play power. That's right. And that, that I think, is the, the, the thing that we need to fear. Um, when, it starts make, when, when punching starts making more sense than talking, um, I, I, that just seems like, the, like the, the death of society at that point. Well, I mean, and what else, what else is vote for Trump to own the libs? What, what else is that other than punching means more than talking? They're my enemy. I don't care what happens. I'm going to do something that hurts them. I mean, eventually that ends with somebody dropping an atom bomb. Mm-hmm. Or the equivalent. Or punch Nazis. I punched you, so you must be a Nazi. 
Yeah. Well, and there there is a kind of Mott and Bailey with all of this, right? There, there's a there's a sense that you can't believe anything the other side says, but our words are straightforward and mean exactly what they mean. So Antifa can't be creating any any problems. They can't be violent. They're anti-fascist. Are you pro-fascist by being anti-Antifa? I just just today on Twitter I saw a Christian celebrity say, uh, well, there's nothing wrong with critical theory. It just means thinking critically about things. Well, yeah, I mean, it does mean that <laughs> on one level. But also, when people use that term, they mean something else, too. And you can't, you can't just dismiss concerns about that other thing by saying, oh, well, you're not against thinking, are you? And you, you see the same thing with Black Lives Matter. Um, if, if you express criticism of the organization Black Lives Matter... It doesn't necessarily mean you're saying that black lives don't matter, which every person of any sensibility ought to be able to affirm. So, but there's there's a kind of language game going on, a language shell game going on with a lot of this stuff. And I, I hate even to say this where I'm being recorded, but uh, I can easily see an organization, you know, starting a new movement called Black Lives Really Matter. And framing themselves, you know, completely in terms against the organization BLM.org and, you know, just creating another event horizon. Even that wouldn't happen, though, because the, the whole the whole hermeneutic here is when we're talking about my side, you need to view everything as naively as you possibly can. And when we're talking about your side, we get to view it as suspiciously as we possibly can. Oh, yeah. And I, I was being a lot more simple minded than that, Michael. I just mean rhetorically maneuver maneuvering them into a position where they have to say well no black lives really matter not <laughs> yeah. I, I get <laughs> I, you, you see something like this when um f- frankly red or stupid conservatives say well you know the nazis were socialists their name says national socialist party oh yes oh yes it it, it, and i don't see how that argument is any different from uh what are you pro-fascist if you're against antifa it's the same argument but when one side makes it it's okay and the other it it isn't well both of those arguments are stupid and and good critical theory would be able to tell you that it's stupid and it does yeah. By the way, I'm so glad I know the term Mott and Bailey because it has come yes. so useful the last few years. <laughs> yes, it, yeah. it, it really is helpful. I was uh, I was on Twitter um, just within the past couple of days. Uh, uh, I don't follow a lot of people, um, but uh, so if Grubbs follows you, you know you're special. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and. It was someone who was uh, rightly pointing out um, within the the sphere of the Southern Baptist Convention, um, pointing out that just sort of whole whole cloth dismissing, um, you know, treating critical race theory as this existential enemy that must be rooted out, um, you know, misses some misses some very important things, and. Uh, and in the in the thread mentioned um, just very important um, you know differences of experience this guy was saying I, I don't have to explain to my sons ways to behave in public so as not to be perceived as threats by citizens and law enforcement 
Um, I haven't been pulled over because I was driving through a neighborhood that wasn't mine. Um, you know, things like that. And I was reading the thread and saying, yes, 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 yes. All of those things are true. But to say there is this perspective, there is this side of life, there is this way in which um, the experience of being black in America, especially being a black man in America, um, is, is, is oppressive, is fearful, is uh, negative in all of these ways doesn't mean to, 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 to say, now I see those insights. Now I'm, now I have, I've seen that that is part of the, of the, of the world that I live in doesn't mean that you also have to say that the answers proposed by the particular organizations are the answers to those problems. And that is, you know, among the, among the things that's, that's happening in the discourse is to say, if we have identified a problem, our solutions are also the correct ones. Well, and, and then you, you also get where critical race theory in particular becomes this uh, devil term that if the Southern Baptists or whoever, because it, it seems to be the Southern Baptists who are always fighting about this on Twitter, if the Southern Baptists don't like what you're saying because it threatens their way of life, um, they just call you a critical race theorist and can dismiss you. So, so there are people on the Internet who actually believe that Beth Moore and Karen Swallow Pryor are, are critical race theorists who are trying to undermine the Southern Baptist Convention for the purposes of socialism. And that's an insane position, one that yeah. you can only get by hating the other side so much that you don't care about the truth. Perhaps hating Kant more than you love Jesus? <laughs> yeah, they, those people actually, they hate Robert D'Angelo more than they love Jesus. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah. Like, uh, there, there are people who, when Rachel Den Hollander points out that, you know, there are pastors who abuse uh, female parishioners and get away with it. They say that she is some sort of critical gender theorist who's trying to destroy the church. That, like, almost literally an insane position. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I yeah. want to shift our attention uh, since we're, you know, I think coming up on time, although we had some technical glitches, so I'm not quite sure what time is, uh, to a recent Agnes Callard New York Times editorial called Should We Cancel Aristotle? Um, listeners, I'll try to link this piece on the Facebook group and on the show notes. Michael, do you see Callard's piece as mainly avoiding theory's questions, mainly as conceding some of theory's concerns but holding fast on other concerns, or doing something completely different? Yeah, I, I see this as addressing, as, as the title suggests, this, this entity called cancel culture. I don't think we've really talked about... we cancel culture yet cancel culture is kind of social media critical theory turned horribly practical right Can cancel culture is is where if um if if you do something wrong or express the wrong opinion you're going to be removed from the sphere of polite conversation whatever that means and and some people get quote unquote canceled and i think we can all agree they deserve it harvey weinstein is in jail i'm fine if he stays in jail for the rest of his life um and then then sometimes uh people get canceled for no good reason whatsoever. There was uh, a, a couple weeks ago, there was a story about a woman who on her 
private Twitter account, not her work one, uh, made some statements that suggested that there was a difference between a biological woman and a trans woman. And, and that woman lost her job at a publishing company. That, that's, that's a different sort of cancellation than what Weinstein is, um, <laughs> is going through, right? Um, and, and so I, I think the question here is whether Aristotle's admittedly non-liberal, um, small-l liberal, uh, views his his views that slaves and women and workmen aren't capable of living the good life. Whether that means that we shouldn't read Aristotle at all. And what I, what I thought was interesting about the article is that she really makes a pretty good case that we shouldn't. She 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 uh, strongmans the opposition rather than strawmanning them. Um, but she she turns it around and says you you know. Uh, those concerns are valid, but those concerns aren't the end of the story. So what the article ends up doing is giving us a model on how we can show the limitations of critical theory, the, the questions it's not capable of answering because of the questions it is capable of answering and saying, well, maybe there are people who are worth paying attention to, even if the things you say about them through critical theory are true. And I, I would compare this to an article that came out about the same time in The New Yorker by Paul Eli, uh, How Racist Was Flannery O'Connor. That is an article that I really think, given Eli's background, he wrote a biography of O'Connor. Um, I, I really think he was trying to ward off cancel culture from O'Connor, but if that's what he was trying to do, he failed miserably. Uh this does a much better job just because it, it is capable, unlike the Eli article, of questioning the terms of the questioning. Uh, and that's what I appreciated about it. N needless to say, that didn't stop people from accusing her of trying to cancel Aristotle because they only read the title of the article. <laughs> Another of the vices of the social media sphere. I, and I would, I would be lying if I said I wasn't guilty of that from time to time, so... Very good. But I read this article, and I liked it. Well, good. Uh, David, I know you don't read a whole lot of uh, New York Times, but uh, what did you think of Dr. Callard? I thought it was a really interesting uh, a really, a really interesting take. I liked her, um, uh, the, the distinctions she was being set up in terms of um, what people's goals are when they communicate in different ways and critical theory... She she wasn't you know she wasn't really kind of naming it as such it seemed to me, but was sort of designating like this is a space that this ex that this explains that this works within. But what if there is another space? <laughs> right, right. Well, let's get to that because I mean Michael has alluded to it already. I mean I I like the way that she says that. Aristotle is good for teaching in the 21st century because you can take him literally. And mm -hmm. Michael, you know, earlier distinguished between taking the things that your people say innocently, whereas you find, uh, you know, insidious agendas in every utterance from their people. Uh, so, I mean, the way that Callard, you know, frames this at the end of the article is that uh, you know, Aristotle is a reminder that, you know, freedom of speech means the freedom to speak literally. Uh, you know, you, you and I are both uh, lovers of medieval literature, so what sense of literal are we talking about here? Well, in the sense that, and this is her, this is her sentence, um, to read 
and she's speaking of Aristotle, to read his words purely as vehicles for the contents of his beliefs. Uh, that is to say, ah, Aristotle thinks that particular things are so. He is going to use his words to say what things he thinks are so. What are the things he thinks are so? Are they so? Like, that's the reading literally that she describes. Uh, this is in contrast to uh, a, a, kind of, uh, a kind of communication. She uses the term messaging to describe it. Um, in literal speech, literal speaking and hearing literally, um, you're just, what, what, what are you trying to communicate? Uh, in messaging, it's more about who is my friend and who is my foe? What is the big game? What moves are they making? What counter moves can I make? Um, and you're always trying to, uh, like, a, like a poker game, like a chess game. You're trying to read the opponent. The thing that they just said is a move. They're setting up something. What are they setting up? Um, how are they, uh, how are they con concealing their nefarious ends behind this you know, seemingly innocent speech? How are they setting up a, a, an aggressive move later on by, you know, uh, whatever, right? And so uh, the... Oh, the way that critical theory, um, as 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 your as your question puts it, the way that the theory theory functions as a phenomena to menace communicating literally, is that theory essentially says there is no literal communication. There's only messaging. Um, theory wants to read through to what you're really saying. And what you're really saying is part of the power game. Um, it's the matrix code that they can see running up in vertical green lines behind your apparently real speech. Um, and having being in possession of, of the theory, they can see that. Uh, it's, it's kind of a species of dramatic irony, which literary, which this literal reading is the opposite of. Um, you know, dramatic irony as when we you know, when we watch Oedipus the King and Oedipus uh, says, um, I shall investigate the murder of the previous king with the same zeal that I would investigate the murder of my own father. And we, the audience, go, ha, because he was your father and you killed him, right? Um, there's something like that going on, I think, in the way critical theory sets you up to listen you're 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 watching the speech of the other person but you're seeing this larger story play out right that's the hermeneutics of suspicion that record talks about yes um so i i think it's interesting uh i made that reference to the matrix um the, the way that the the way that terms like woke get used on one side but on the way um, uh, the alt-right uses the expression red pill both of them have exactly the same connotation huh that you wake up to the reality of 
being inside of this system in which you know the the, the rules are 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 shaped against you and the one who who perceives the illusory reality that's keeping you in you now have the freedom to fight and break out of it right but both both sides of that you know uh of that divide use that same way of thinking and i can't remember did we talk about that on our matrix episode all of the imagery of sleeping and waking uh i don't know maybe we did should have i don't remember seems like we should have <laughs> but if yeah. not david just now did <laughs> well in the end it means that if you if the, the theorized can't actually assess your ideas or your goals or your motives based on what you literally profess um, if, if to, to do that would be to leave behind the Gnostic certainty. Um, yeah. And that's not to say that Aristotle in his own time wasn't capable of playing messaging game, messaging games. <laughs> oh, sure. Sure. <laughs> but one of the things I like about her, uh, about her article is, uh, Callard's article is the way that she calls Aristotle an alien. His context, yeah. his ideas are so disconnected from ours that whatever game he's playing, we're not on the board. We're not on the field. We're not playing that game with him. Right, right. I've, I've really enjoyed a few articles that Dr. Callard has written here recently. So, uh, listeners, I mean, if you can go seek out her recent pieces... Uh, they're worth checking out. Michael, this is a massively broad topic, and I'll grant that. So here at the end, I'm going to open it up and go around the horn. So start us off with a practice for living well with theory, a question you'd pose to thinking Christians about critical theory, an example of critical theory doing good or bad things, or whatever else, and when you finished, pass the baton to David. I said that I feel like I'm living in Ionesco's Rhinoceros. And if you don't know that play, it's it's very funny and very scary. It's a, <laughs> it's a small town in France, and one by one, the inhabitants turn into rhinoceroses. It's a metaphor for fascism, I think. But I, I feel that way because there are abuses on one side, right? There's, there's a certain absurdist quality to woke culture, cancel culture, critical race theory, whatever you want to call it, right? There's some real grifters working there. But what worries me is that when people reject critical theory, even when they reject its most extreme forms, they become susceptible to grifters on the other side. So Dave Rubin is an example. Dave Rubin is a, he was once a, uh, once he was a leftist, now he's a libertarian, I think. And, and he, he's made a career for himself by critiquing uh, woke culture. And I, I think he has some good things to say um, sometimes. But this week I looked at his podcast and his guest is Donald Trump Jr. And I, I, I don't understand how you can reject obvious grift on one side and run into even more obvious grift on the other side. What is it about rejecting the, the kind of pseudo-intellectual, pseudo-expertise of woke culture that then makes you just accept any amount of absurdity on the other side? That is what scares me the most, because it seems like 
rejecting one side doesn't put you into some sort of sensible middle where you're capable of saying, oh, well, you know, there's good things in critical theory. No, what you do instead is invite Donald Trump Jr. and give him a platform. I, I hope I'm not saying anything too controversial by saying that guy you know, <laughs> no, is, is, no. is not, not worth taking seriously. No, and it reminds me, Michael, uh, you know, and I'll just quote everyone that I'm reported to uh, have a distaste for. Uh, and I'll have to paraphrase it because I don't have it memorized, but the Chesterton bit where he says, when people stop believing in God, it's not that they believe in nothing, it's that they'll believe in anything. But it's like, even the people who supposedly believe in God believe in anything. Yeah, yeah. Is it that they leave the team, but they don't leave the field? There's some truth to that. And I used to say, you know, fundamentalists often leave fundamentalism and become new atheists or whatever the 2020 equivalent of, I guess, you know, woke social justice atheists. Um, But it's like everybody's doing this now. it's, it's, (laughs) it's, it's, It's people who should really know better. Right. People who have the capability to think about things and come up with something other than prepackaged answers, whether those answers are, um, patriarchy or make america great again like both of those are stupid answers yeah but if i have to pick one i suppose i would pick the critical theory because i i just the 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 forces on the other side are so obviously ripping you off i mean at least it seems that some people in the critical theory can't believe what they're saying does that make them more or less dangerous it probably makes them more dangerous, but it at least allows me to feel sorry for them. <laughs> On that note, David, what would you add? One of the one of the things that my wife and I talk about a lot is the importance of engaging people that you disagree with and actually reading what they say. And uh, she has a whole there's there's a whole conversation there that I'm not gonna that I'm I'm not gonna rehearse but uh, that led me to revalue uh, a lot of the things that we've done on this podcast Um, I've had to read a lot of things on this podcast that I would not have chosen to read Um, I've had to find things to talk about um, and I've come to appreciate uh, thinkers perspectives um, maybe not completely agree with, but at least be able to say, okay, I see where that idea is coming from. And they've got some things that are that are worth saying. And even if I'm not going to say what they say, I had to come up with things to say <laughs> that I hadn't said before. Right. Even when you're answering the question differently, you answered the question. Yes. Right. Yeah. So one of the examples of that is uh, the the series that we did reading uh james cone's god of the oppressed i felt like that was Mm -hmm. really good for me um i don't always think that the way that james cone answered his questions um was the best way to do it but the way that he was asking his questions and the way that he was framing his answers was really compelling and and required thinking through and so um if you are suspicious of the critical theory of whatever it is, um, having some level of engagement with it, uh, can be good for you. Not, not because, you know, we're asking you to, you know, 
go be converted to this, that, or the other thing, but because it requires you to think about the questions and formulate your answers in ways that you hadn't before. Um, to kind of reinforce that, it was, I think this article came out after we'd done our James Cone series, but uh, it's a was written by a professor at uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, a guy named Walter Strickland. Uh, and the article was posted on um, one of their, uh, one of the SEBTS websites. But the title is Real Ideas in Play, Foundational Convictions, Black Theology, and My Journey with James Cone. And it's a, a long... Uh, not not super long, but it, it, it is a it is uh, scrolling down. That's not as long as I remembered it being, but it's it is uh, a, a description of a conservative theologian who is a black man writing about his engagement with James Cone and as the father of black theology. And it's uh, that this was really interesting for me because I've always felt out in some way outside of what James Cone is doing. Um, and it was interesting for me to read this article and see the see the way that Dr. Strickland's experience was like and unlike mine, uh, as he was also um, reading and thinking with Cone, in conversation with Cone, even when he came to different conclusions than Cone. Um, that was that was interesting for me. So, I guess all that to say this, um, the article, the Agnes Callard article, that says, you can treat Aristotle as an alien and you can take his ideas literally and you will be better for having had conversation with him. Um, for a lot of our listeners, as for me, um, a lot of critical theory sounds like it's coming out of the mouth of an alien. <laughs> Maybe I should listen. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I think the, the sort of listening you have to do, reading James Cone or whoever, is to is to take them neither naively nor suspiciously. You know, you don't you don't yes. have to just believe everything they say, but you also don't have to assume that everything they're saying is coming from some sort of motivation to destroy. Now, some people are writing that way, but I don't think most people are. So let's, you know, cut each other some slack. Also let people be wrong. I I feel like that's something that, that Twitter doesn't let you do. Like you, if, if somebody's (laughs) wrong, you know, you don't have to destroy them for it. You can still like them, even if they're wrong. Well, I mean, I, I, I could think of worse ways to end. So, guys, I want to thank you. This is uh, one of those conversations that as I was writing the notes, I knew that the conversation was beyond my uh, my powers to contain it. Uh, but you two did admirably uh, following my wandering show notes. Um, I have to say, I was dreading this conversation, but I, uh, I had a lot of fun. Very good. Uh trying to think here michael you've got the helm next episode what are we talking about next time 
We're going to read an essay by a postmodern neo-Marxist, one of the Frankfurt School called Walter ben- Benjamin, although it's a, a fairly uh, a fa- fairly anodyne little essay called Unpacking My Library. Very good. Well, listeners, uh, in the meantime, uh, you can find us at christianhumanist.org. You can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. We have a Facebook group. Uh, we have a Twitter account, which is at CH Radio Network. Uh, so any of those avenues, feel free to contact us. We love to hear from our listeners. Christian Humanist Podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. Michael Farmer does our audio editing. And in behalf of Michael and of David Grubbs, I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. <laughs>